This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. I am so excited to interview someone today who I admire greatly and who has contributed so much to understanding the importance of deep, meaningful connections. So today, I'm going to be interviewing Johan Hari about his new book called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Not only is Johan an award-winning British journalist and playwright, but he's an amazing researcher. And he says our ability to pay attention is collapsing. And he basically did a three-year deep dive into trying to work out why and offers solutions. He says our attention spans are suffering, but maybe there's a way to get them back. So listen on. Just a note before we begin today's episode. If you enjoy listening to my podcast and want to get access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, sign up today to become a Patreon member. Every month I will be releasing special bonus podcasts on topics you have requested, doing live Q&As and more. When you sign up today, you will get immediate access to two podcasts on topics I think are so important and pertinent, how to become less emotionally reactive and how to capture and edit thoughts before they become harmful. You will also have access to exclusive digital downloads and become part of a special community. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Dr. Caroline Leaf. The link will also be in the show notes. Johan, it is such an honor to be interviewing you today. I'm thrilled. I love you. I love your work. Your books are phenomenal. I mean, I consumed Lost Connections and Chasing the Scream. And this latest one, Stolen Focus, is absolutely fantastic. You know, as a communication pathologist and neuroscientist, I spent years telling my patients, on the pres- first pressing on the prescription, read, 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 you know, and all these things that you say, I kept, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. This is, look at my, look at my, this book. I kept thinking, can I just dog ear? It looks like I've destroyed your book, but I thought I'll dog ear oh, a few yeah. places and make notes, but the whole thing's covered. I could speak about each chapter for about, you know, five hours or so, but we only have an hour. So I'm going to let you really lead the show. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor. Oh, thank you so much, Caroline. That's such a lovely way of greeting me. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, let's start with you. I know my listeners, most of them will know about and have heard for, heard who um, read your books or heard about you. But I'd love you just to share a little bit of your background story, you know, the normal kind of thing. Where, how did you get to writing these books? You have such a great story. So let's start there. Oh, God. Well, my parents met here in London Um and my dad was an immigrant from a very poor village in Switzerland. And my mother had grown up in a poor part of Scotland and they both kind of ran away from home. And they met here and they, they, uh, my mother spoke only English and my dad didn't speak a word of English. And they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain is not a concept that makes sense. If there's more than one of them, it's not a one night stand. And she got pregnant and they thought they had to get married. And really often she'll cry and say, 
he seemed so nice when I couldn't understand what he was saying. But 52 years later, they're still married, somewhat disastrously, but they're still together. And I am the product of this unholy union. So I grew up here in London. I'm a journalist, so I, I live half the year, in, in not in plague times, but in normal times. I live half the year in London and half the year in the United States. And yeah, I suppose that's the best way to summarise my, my origins. Yeah, so I grew up in a family in a suburb of London. And yeah, my dad was a bus driver. My mother was a, a nurse. And then she worked in shelters for survivors of domestic violence. And yeah, so then I became a journalist. The, and, and a journalist of note. I mean, you really go and when you write books, you go and do research for years. I mean, you told me you've just been in Vegas over the over the pandemic researching your next book, which is fascinating. And so your whole journey of writing books is so fascinating. Can you just talk a little bit about how you write books? Yeah, for me, it's such a long process of writing a book and requires so much attention and so much work. That for me, it has to be driven by genuine curiosity. So for each of my books, I always start with a question that I don't know the answer to. And, you know, of course, I have instincts and guesses. I'm not starting completely from a blank sheet, but but I really don't know the answer. So we're chasing the scream. You know, we'd had a lot of addiction in my family. We still do. And for me, the question that was driving me was, okay, well, well, what causes addiction? Why do we seem to respond in such a punitive, aggressive way? What are the alternatives like? So that was the question I wanted to answer for that. And it ended up taking me on this enormous journey. But Lost Connections, it was my second book. It, it was about, you know, why have depression and anxiety risen so much? Um, why have they, in fact, been rising all throughout my lifetime? And, and what's going on here? And it was weird to have had that experience of writing about the reasons why depression and anxiety have risen, like loneliness, financial insecurity, a whole range of things. And then for COVID to arrive and see depression literally double for exactly those reasons, it it was a very strange experience. And, and for this latest book, Stolen Focus, I really wanted to understand. It seemed to me, I didn't know if it was if the science backed this up when I started, it seemed to me that a lot of the people I know, not just young people, but including them, were really struggling to pay attention and focus. It felt like with every year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, were becoming harder and harder for people. It was more and more like running up a down escalator. And I wanted to find out, well, is that true? Is that really happening? If so, why? And most importantly, what can we do to get our attention back? And quite early on, I learned that there's some, you know, there was some early suggestive evidence as a, a small study of American college students that found that on average, they now focus for 65 seconds on any task. And the average office worker now focuses for three minutes on any one task. But I wanted to ask, okay, well, what's going on here? And I, I learned from, so I traveled all over the world from Miami to Moscow, from Rio to New Zealand, interviewing experts and people who've been affected by the changes in our attention in all sorts of different ways. And, and I learned that there's scientific evidence for 12 different factors that are degrading our attention, many of which are rising rapidly. And that there are ways we can deal with this, but it has to, we have to have two levels of response. There's what we can do as individuals, as isolated individuals, to deal with this personally. And then there's the level of what we can do collectively together to take on these forces. Because the book is called Stolen Focus, because it's not that your attention collapsed. It's that your, your attention was stolen, right, by big forces. And this is what we need to understand. 
It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I cannot agree with you more. You know, I've practiced for 25 years and I've been in clinical research for 38. It's a long time. It's four decades of research looking at this whole mind-brain-body connection. And when I read your stuff, it's you are so spot on with the questions that you ask and the answers that you have searched and put together. So these are kind of vital. These are books that are that you've written that are key to us actually functioning as decent society again, because you tap into the things that make us human. You know, in the stolen focus, you really are, are, it's just, it's really excellent. So, I mean, I w- want to dive into every chapter, but I'm going to be selfish and focus on a few of the ones that are, are uh, that I spent a lot of time really diving into, but I'd love us to give an overview. So the first thing is, you've mentioned that there's 12 areas. So let's give a, if you wouldn't mind giving a broad area of the 12, and then I'm going to select a few to dive into. And please, if you would rather choose other ones, we can do that too. There's a huge range of these forces. And I think one of the things that underlies a lot of this is that we need to have a change in perspective. So when I felt my own attention failing, I would go into a sort of burst of self-recrimination. I would blame myself. I would say, oh, you're lazy. You're not disciplined enough. You're weak. And actually, I really had a moment of revelation. I went to interview when, when it began to fall into place for me. It was quite early in the journey for the book. I went to interview a man named Professor Joel Nick, who's one of the leading experts on children's attention and children's attention problems. And he said to me, he drew an analogy. He said, you know, think about the obesity epidemic. If you look at a picture of a beach in the United States or Britain in 1970, it's really striking. Everyone is what we would think of as slim or buff right? Everyone. There are, there's nobody who's by our standards, what we would call fat or overweight. Um, and it's really jarring. And this of course matches with, it's not that there were loads of overweight people. They just didn't go to the beach. It's that you look at the statistics, there were almost no obese people in 1970. And what happened? What happened is our culture changed. Our entire food supply system changed to go from fresh, nutritious food to processed or ultra processed food full of sugars and all sorts of things that screws up. And our cities changed, so it's basically impossible. I think about Dallas, the city you're in now, where I spent a fair bit of time. You just can't bike around Dallas. You can't walk around most parts of Dallas. It's impossible, right? So we, we, we end up living in cities where it's impossible. I've just spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. You, no one walks in Las Vegas, right? It's impossible. The, the only people who walk are homeless people, essentially. Like that, that's, so we had this big change in the way we live, and that change led to the, produced the obesity crisis. And what happened is we then all blamed ourselves. We said, oh, I'm greedy. You know, all the stigmatizing things we say about overweight people. I'm greedy. I indulged myself too much. And we sort of tormented and tortured ourselves. But what really happened was a social epidemic with big social causes. And and Professor Nigel argued that that is essentially what's happening now with the attention crisis. He, he He said we have to start asking do we have a crisis that's being caused by specific things that are going wrong in the way we live? The way he put it is that we may be developing an attentional pathogenic culture, which means we have a culture where it's getting harder and harder for everyone to pay attention and focus. And that we need to deal with that primarily at the level. There's things we can do as isolated individuals, but we need to actually take on these forces that are stealing our focus. So I'd say that kind of something that underlies Almost all of the 12 causes that are, are, of our attention crisis. 
I totally agree with how you've summed that up, and it's such a, fa- a valid point. You know, watching, I remember watching when I was practicing and watching the change from when I started working in the 80s and did my, the first, I did some of the first work in neuroplasticity in my field and watching how I ran my practice and watching how the kids changed and adults, because I worked with children, adolescents and adults. And just the change over the last, uh, well, I don't practice anymore, but the change over that time period of kids reading books, for example, and that was just normal to actually having to get someone to read a book and, you know, all the changes. So I, I so tune into what you're saying. It is, it's, it's a societal issue. It's definitely not an individual, but we've made it very moralistic. It's all about the individual, the whole kind of current psychiatric move, the biomedical model, all these things have made it about, you know, if you've got a problem, it's something wrong with you. Meanwhile, society's messing us up in so many ways. So that is fantastic. You you talk about in your in your introduction just your your nephew and walking in Memphis and how that really stimulated you to get into it was a great story just to launch the book. Can you talk just briefly about that? I, yeah, I really my, enjoyed my, that. My, yeah, my godson. It was godson. Um, that's right, godson. Yeah, it was. It was the moment when I realised I had to write the book because this had been this was a, an issue that had been worrying away at me for many years. Right, these questions, and then I had this moment when, when my godson had been nine years old. He developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never understood where he first learned about Elvis from television or YouTube or something, but he he did these incredibly cute impressions of Elvis. And of course, he didn't know that that had become a kind of cheesy Vegas cliche. So he did it with all that kind of heart-catching sincerity of like a nine-year-old who thinks they're being cool. And and, it, it, and he, he, he kept saying to me, tell me the story of Elvis. Tell me the story of Elvis. So I would tell him the story of Elvis. You know, he was born in this town in Mississippi. He was very poor. He was born, his brother, his twin brother died at birth. And his mother told him that if he sang at the moon, his brother could hear him. So that's why Elvis began to sing. We went through the whole story. I told him how he bought a palace for his mother and named it Graceland. And and one day when I was tucking him in, he said to me, you know, Johan, one day will you take me to Graceland? And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, in the way that you do to children, you know, and he said, no, do you really promise? And I said, yeah, I promise. And I never thought about it again until 10 years later, when my godson, who I'll, I'll call, call him Adam, that's not his real name, it's just to not disclose his identity, everything had really gone wrong. He, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And, he, and it, by the time he was 19, he was just obsessively, he was just on screens constantly. He would alternate between his phone, his iPad, his laptop, flicking between apps on all of them. It's like his life was this blur of like, snap, you know, Snapchat, WhatsApp, pornography, just YouTube. just And it was, and he was a lovely person, but it was like nothing could get any traction in his mind. It was like his mind was whirring at the speed of Snapchat. And in the decade in which Adam had become a man, this fracturing, this fragmentation had happened to so many people. And he was an extreme example. I could feel it happening to myself, my own attention was significantly less good than it had been been before. And I remember one day we were sitting on my sofa in London. I was watching him literally alternating between two devices. And, and I was trying to talk to him and he just would sort of speak in these fragments and go back to it. And I said, let's go to Graceland. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, let's go to, he didn't even remember this Elvis obsession he'd had. And I reminded him of it. And I said, no, no, let's go to Graceland. And he said, oh, all right. I was like, something had to break this numbing routine. I said to him, I'll take you, but on one condition, we'll go, we can go all over the South, but on the condition that when we go, you leave your phone in the hotel, right? You don't, because I can't take you around and you be on the phone all the time. It'll drive me insane. And he said, yeah, I promise. 
So two weeks later, we took off from Heathrow. We went to New Orleans first. And when when you land at the gates of Gra- when you arrive at the gates of Graceland now, uh, there isn't a physical person to show you around. This is pre-COVID. There isn't a physical person to show you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in headphones and the iPad shows you around. So it, it is an actor's voice narrating and it says, go left. This room is where this happened. Go right. So it's telling you the story. So we're walking around Graceland for like half an hour, just surrounded by all these blank faced people who are literally just staring at a screen. Right. And I keep trying to make eye contact with them to go, oh, how funny. We, you know, we've traveled 3000 miles and you and me are the only people looking up. And finally, I, I know someone who did look up and took the earphones out. And I was about to say something to them. And then I realized, guy, and then I realized he'd only done that so he could take a selfie, post it on Instagram, and then put the earphones back in. So we, we arrived in the jungle room, which was Elvis's famous favorite room in the mansion. It's a bit shabby now, actually, but it's sort of fake jungle plants. I'm in the jungle room, and there's this couple next to me. I think they were a Canadian couple. And one of them, the man turns to his wife and he said, hey, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left on the iPad, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And she starts looking at her iPad and swiping left and right. And I sort of looking at him and I, and I said, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you can do. It's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room, right? You don't have to look at it on your iPad. We're, we're literally there. The thing you're looking at on the iPad is in front of you, right? And they just looked slightly puzzled and walked off. And I, I turned to, to Adam, my godson, to sort of laugh about it. And he was just in the corner of the room looking at Snapchat because the whole way through the trip, he'd just been obsessively looking at his phone. And I, and I sort of snapped to him and I said, you know, you're, you know, you're afraid of missing out, but you're guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You, you, you're not present with the things that are right in front of you. And he sort of stormed off. And I spent the rest of the day wandering around Graceland on my own. And later that night, I found him. We were staying in the Heartbreak Hotel, which is just across the street from Graceland. And I remember I found him sitting by the swimming pool. The swimming pool was the shape of a guitar. And they play a loop of suspicious minds the whole time. And I, I was sitting there with him and, and he was looking at his phone and he just said, I know something's wrong. I just don't know what. And just carried on scrolling. And that was when I thought, I need to figure out what's going on here. We all know what we eat can impact our mind and brain health, which is why my family always tries to look for new, tasty and interesting foods that taste great and are nutrient-dense. This is why I love Emmy, the world's first low-carb, high-protein and 100% plant-based instant ramen. Each serving of Emmy has 21 grams of protein, 19 grams of fiber and only 6 grams of net carbs. It's also non-GMO and is 35% lower in sodium versus traditional brands, which leaves you full and satisfied without the post-ramen bloating and thirst. It's also really convenient if you have a busy schedule like myself. Emmy is super easy to prepare in the microwave or soap dock and you can have a bowl ready in just 7 minutes. My personal favorite flavor is Emmy's Tom Yum Shrimp, flavored plant-based ramen, which has been keeping me warm and satisfied this winter. They also have a delicious plant based spicy beef flavored ramen and a black garlic chicken flavored ramen as well. They only use the highest quality ingredients for their noodle and soup bases with no unnatural preservatives. Emmy is also proud to offer a 100% happiness guarantee. So you can try Emmy risk-free and decide for yourself if Emmy is worth it. If you're not happy with your Emmy, they will offer you a full refund within 30 days of purchase. 
Visit immyeats.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to try Immy's delicious low-carb, plant-based and fiber-rich ramen. That's immyeats.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. You know, when I read that story and the way you described it and how the, you know, the swiping left and right and they're in the actual awareness, or they're in the actual place, it just made me realize how, and I wrote a book years, I've written, I understand writing books, I've written many books and I had a whole section as well on just how we have got so lost in technology, so lost in, we're so busy twittering and Snapchatting and Instagramming the moment that we forget to enjoy the moment. So that really got my attention when you wrote that story. And and it is systemic because immediately, you know, that he, if, if, your, if your godson went to a traditional you know, psychiatric clinic or something or at school, if he was di- he'd be diagnosed with endless amounts of things that are wrong with him. Meanwhile, it's the societal changes. And as he, as he said, that really prompted you. And that's why I'm so glad you shared that statement because that really grabbed me when he said, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. And you proceed now with the rest of the book to unpack what was wrong. So would you mind giving a, an overview of each of the 12? And then oh, we'll dive I into a couple. Have the list. Do you mind if I don't do that? Of course, and I've, yeah, I've got them here. Book. I can, I can prompt okay, you. Yeah. I can yeah. prompt you. Well, no, so, I, I'd rather not go. Th- if it's okay, I'd rather not go through each one of them, but just kind of look absolutely. at Absolutely, you can do whatever okay. you want. Whatever okay. you is work, it's going to help people understand the space. So you choose. Go ahead. I think you're so right about the pathology. What you were just saying about the pathologization, because what we've done is we've got these deep social problems with social causes, and then what we do is we pathologize the individual. We say there's something wrong with you, right? Now, of course, individuals can have all sorts of problems, and it's important to deal with problems at the level, and I agree with that strongly. But I also think it's worth thinking about, and this is one of the things that really surprised and interested me, is to think about, so it's tempting to say, oh, this is just the product of the technology. Actually, there's many things going on, but even within the technology debate, It's really interesting to me to realise that a lot of this distraction, not all of it, but a lot of this distraction and this invasion of our attention is not the result of the technology itself, but the result of the current business model behind these technologies. And I spent a lot of time, and I think that's such a very empowering thing to learn. I felt very empowered. You realise, oh, because actually the technology is not going to go away. We're not all going to convert and become the Amish, right? But we can change the business model, and nor would we want to. There are changes we can make to the business model of the technology that will make it much less invasive to attention. It took me a long time to understand that. I spent a lot of time interviewing in Silicon Valley some of the people who had designed key aspects of these technologies that now obsess us. And my way, one of the ways that it started to make sense for me is when I was asked by Tristan Harris, who is a, a lot of people know his work of he was Google's design ethicist for a long time and then quit because they, they're not interested in ethics. So there's no point being their ethicist. But Metristan saying to me, if you open Facebook now, right, Facebook's going to tell you loads of things. It's going to tell you, you know, your friend tagged you in a photo, can tell you other people's birthdays. It's going to tell you if there was a terrorist attack, if people checked in. But there's no button to do something really obvious to just say, which of my friends are nearby and would like to meet up, Right. That seems like a very obvious thing. I'm sure everyone listening would think, oh, I'd love that, right? That that would be really popular with Facebook users. Why is there no such button? If you follow the trail from that question, it helps you to understand a lot about the invasion of our attention. So Facebook's business model and the the business model of all existing social media relies upon two things. 
Firstly, obviously, if you open Facebook now and you start scrolling through it, you'll see advertisements, right? Obviously, they make advertisers pay them. That's fairly straightforward. Secondly, the more important way in which they make money is everything you do on Facebook is tracked and sorted. So let's say that you, you know, you like Kylie Minogue, you like videos that make you angry, and you, you know, let's say you message your mother and mention that you've just bought diapers. Oh, okay, so it learns, okay, likes Kylie Minogue, he's an angry person, and he's got a child, right? So it builds up these complex profiles of you over time, right? And the reason it does that is because then it can sell it to sell the information about you to advertisers so they can target the ads directly at you. So they're not wasting, you don't want to ad- advertise diapers to everyone. I don't have children. It'd be pointless to market diapers to me. So you can see how they're building up these profiles all the time. Now, every time you put down your phone, both of those revenue streams go away, right? Facebook ceases to make money. So Facebook's business model has to be about figuring out how can we keep you glued to that screen for the longest possible amount of time? Now you see why they don't have that button. Because the button said, oh, you push the button, you go, oh, Joe's around the corner and he wants to have a drink with me, wants to go for a coffee. You would put your phone down, right? And then the minute you do that, they're losing money. So they want you to talk to Joe only through Facebook, right? They don't want you to talk to Joe in the real world. So a lot of this invasion the, 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 we have to understand as a result of this business model, Facebook and other social media sites were deliberately designed to maximally hack and invade your attention. That's, 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 that's their business model in the same way that KFC's business model is to get you to eat fried chicken, right? And they, and they were very conscious about this. Sean Parker, one of the first founder investors of Facebook, said, we had to figure out how to take as much of people's attention as we possibly could. That was our conscious goal. He said, I, we knew we were doing it and we did it anyway. So this is very conscious, very deliberate. And, and that's why Facebook has developed a whole range of techniques that deliberately hack and invade your attention. I can talk about a few of them if you like. There's four big ones. So one is it sets up a system of rewards that we then crave. So you likes are an obvious example, hearts on Instagram. You, you, you know, you get accustomed to getting these likes. You start to crave them. You start to desperately want them like a slot, like someone in Vegas playing the slot machines. You start to desperately want those rewards. And when you're deprived of them, you feel anxious and you want to go back to the app to get more. Another one is uh, another way in which this invades our attention is what's called switching. So I had a really interesting conversation about this with Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, he's a professor at MIT, explained to me, you know, you have to understand one thing about your brain, which is, and you know this much better than I do, you can only think consciously about one thing at a time, right? We have really limited ability to think in this way. And that's just the fundamental structure of the human brain that hasn't changed for 40,000 years. But what's happened is, as a result, partly of these constant demands and hacking of our attention, We've convinced ourselves that actually we can follow many things at the same time. The average American teenager believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. But he said, when you do that, and my, my God, some would be a classic example. He said, when you do that, what, when you f- oscillate very quickly between different forms of media or just different things, what in fact happens is you're juggling, right? Your brain is switching between these things. Now your consciousness papers over it, so it feels like a seamless experience. But actually, you're juggling. And that comes with several big costs. Um, 
So let's say, for example, now I glanced at my text messages, right? You might think, oh, that just takes a second for me to glance at my text messages, then look back at you. In fact, then I have to refocus my mind. I have to go, wait, what was I talking about again? What, what, what did she just ask me? And, and, and that comes at a certain, that, a significant cost. Also, you start to make mistakes because if you're toggling between things, you make mistakes, then you have to go back and correct your mistakes. Also, you remember less because it takes mental energy to encode your your memories into your experiences into memories and you become less creative because your brain just has less space to wonder to think associatively so switching is another way and which has a really big effect i mean there was a study at carnegie mellon university really simple study they took 138 students and split them into two groups one group was just told to do an exam in the normal way with normal exam conditions and the other group was told you can leave your phone on and receive text messages And the group that could receive text messages did 20% worse on the exam, right? Now we are all losing that 20% of brain power because of this constant culture of distraction. Another way in which social media invades our attention is what I would call the fracking effect. So it's where the social media companies, by monitoring you, learn how to hack specifically your attention, right? So for me, the, the sweet spot would be to show me you know, a political video, a picture of a shirtless man, a political video, a picture of a shirtless man. That's the, that'd be the ideal way to distract me, get me to between looking at hot men and thinking about politics, right? Other people will have, people listening will have different ways. So the Facebook algorithm knows if you want to keep your hands scrolling, that's what we do. Keep a drip feed of that, right? And the, the fourth way invades your attention is that it makes you angry. There's all sorts of reasons why that we can talk about. And anger degrades your attention. We all know that. When you're angry, you can't focus in the same way. And this, and so the algorithms may anger us. They make us angry. It's why a study by the Pew Research Center found that if you fill your Facebook status updates with indignant moral disagreement, you will double the amount of likes and shares you get. Because the algorithms... Wow. Yeah, you've just summarized what everyone is instinctively feeling, but they don't have maybe the words to put it into practice and to really understand the implications. But it's really frightening because it's destroying that whole mind-brain-body connection. You know, what I saw in my research, and I'm just listening to you, and, and I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up because those are some everything you said was some of the things that I had actually highlighted to bring up because they are so significantly relevant now. And I showed that when we don't manage our minds, your mind drives your brain, your mind shows up in your brain, then your brain's going to be a mess and your body's going to be a mess. But when you introduce mind management, which is essentially what you're teaching people to do, it's bringing people's attention back and you know the things that you highlight, you can get an 81% improvement in how you function. And you know that's huge. That's, that's like, so in other words, just managing how you are focusing, what you're focusing on, how you're going to deal with stuff can change your functioning by an 81% factor, which is, you know, and you're pretty much saying that. So in other words, Facebook and, and technology is designed to, take away your ability to manage yourself and just to be controlled literally from this this uh, taking all these things away from us and being controlled by an external force and it's like it, it keeps us so distracted that we, we our mind gets messy so our brain gets messy i mean it's just brilliant it's just brilliant how you've i also think the most important thing for people to understand <sighs> is that it doesn't have to be like that right? exactly exactly it does not have to and i think there's we're not victims we can be victims but we don't have to be victims Exactly. I think there's several ways we can deal with that. There's individual techniques, and obviously you're stressing some of them quite rightly. 
I also think there are collective techniques. I would draw an analogy. Some people, some older people listening will obviously remember this, but I, I remember it. So in the 1970s and 19, right until, well, 70s with one and the 80s to another, in the 70s, it was very common for people to paint their homes with lead paint, paint that had lead in it, right? And right up to the late 80s in, in Britain and the United States, it was normal to have leaded gasoline, right? So pet, petrol would have lead in it. And it was discovered, it was actually known since the 1920s, it's just that the industry suppressed the science, but it was known for a long time, and then finally absolutely everyone understood it, that lead profoundly damages, exposure to lead profoundly damages your ability to pay attention, causes a huge increase in attention problems in children, actually even an increase in violent behaviour. It's why there was a huge increase in violence in the 60s, because there was a huge increase in lead exposure. And so what did we do? We banned lead, right? Now, I'm sitting in a room that's been painted. You're sitting in a room that's been painted. Uh, There are cars going outside my window. We still have paint. We still have gasoline. We just don't have leaded paint and leaded gasoline. In a similar way, we can have social media without these these core attention-destroying components. Yeah, those four that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the core of getting to that is that we have to ban the current business model. For as long as the business model is based, your fuel is that, sorry, your distraction is their fuel, right? That they are absolutely financially dependent on distracting you. So it doesn't matter if the people running those companies are nice people or nasty people. And, you know, they're not like Bond villains deliberately trying to destroy our attention just for the fun of it. But as long as their business model is absolutely based on invading people's attention, they will continue to invade our attention. And as one of the leading designers of this, a designers of a designer of a key aspect of all the media we use online, Asa Raskin said to me, his dad, Jeff Raskin, was actually the guy who designed the Apple Macintosh, said to me, we should just ban ban this model, ban this business model, right? Inhuman, it's anti-human. We should not permit people to, you know, surveil us in order to figure out how best to hack our attention and then sell our attention to the highest bidder. Just ban it. And once that happens, it's not like Facebook, you know, you'd open Facebook the next day and it would say, oh, we've all gone fishing, right? What would happen is they would have to adopt a different business model. And there are business models that everyone watching and listening has had experience with. One potential would be subscription, like Netflix. Another model would be, you know, anyone listening to this, you are near a sewer and you own that sewer, right? We as taxpayers own our sewage system together because when we didn't have sewage systems, there was feces in the street and cholera outbreaks. And then we decided to build and own these sewer pipes together, right? Because we all have an interest in them existing. In a similar way, we might want to say, okay, we want to own the informational pipes together, right? Because we're getting the attentional equivalent of cholera. Now, whatever alternative business model we adopt, suddenly the incentives for these companies profoundly change. At the moment, the incentive is how do I maximally hold, hack, and invade your attention? But actually, when they start, because they don't work for us, they work for the advertisers. But when, but when we're the ones who own it, either through subscription or through public ownership in some form, then the incentives completely change. Then that button that says, which of my friends are available and want to meet up, immediately becomes a great. That would be the first thing they would do because they want to serve you instead of selling you to someone else. They want to serve you instead of serving you up, right? So it's really important that we we understand it doesn't have to be this way. We can change these models. 
That is brilliant. And what you also, what the implication coming out there is that we shouldn't just sit back and accept it. We need to, we need to change it. Society changes from the grassroots up. It changes one level, you know, one person at a time. And when we collectively come together, we can change things. You know, you showed that in your other books too. That's, you know, change happens. We we, we can deeply, we don't have to tolerate this. It's like someone is pouring powder over us all the time. And then they say, you know, you might want to you might want to learn how to meditate because it'll stop you scratching so much, right? It, it, it's madness, <laughs> but it's, which is not to say meditation no. doesn't have real value. Of course, it does. No, but that's not the answer for that that particular problem. It stopped the itchy exactly. powder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we all know that you know, and it can seem daunting, right? These are very powerful forces we have to take on. But when I feel daunted about that, I think a lot about my grandmothers, who I knew very well, I loved deeply. My grandmothers, I'm 42. When my grandmothers were 42, it was 1962. And one of my grandmothers was a working class Scottish woman who was living in Scottish tenements. And my other grandmother was living on a on a farm in the mountains in Switzerland. It was what would be called a peasant at the time. Both my grandmothers left school when they were 13, even though the men in their families carried on going to school. They left at 13. My Scottish grandmother went to work in a laundry and then to be a cleaner. And they were denied almost any rights of any kind. My, my Swiss grandmother didn't even have the right to vote. When they were 42, there were 4% of women in the British Parliament and the US Senate were women. 4% of members of the Senate and Parliament were women. There were no, there were no women who ran companies. There were no women who'd ever run a country since Cleopatra. There were, or Elizabeth I. There were no, it was legal for their husbands to rape them. They were not allowed to have bank accounts in their own names because they were married women. Now, this, we still have a long way to go, of course, in achieving equality but, and, and liberation for women. But my niece's life is unrecognisable to my grandmother's lives, right? My grandmother, my Swiss grandmother, wanted to be an artist. She loved to draw. They told her to shut up. It was stupid. Women didn't get to do that. My niece loves to draw. We're like, great, you'll go to art school. You're amazing, right? That transformation which happened at everyone listening, if you think about your grandmothers, will have a similar transformation. That transformation didn't happen because one day people decided to do the right thing, right? It happened because ordinary women banded together and some sympathetic men and said, we're not taking this shit anymore, right? You're not doing this to us anymore. And it was a long fight, right? So when we think, oh, you know, Facebook is really powerful. These companies are really powerful. In 1962, men controlled every single organized institution in the world, every police force, every company, every parliament, everything, right? So when you get daunted, remember, they're not not half as powerful, these forces we have to take on as men were in 1962, right? And that power was successfully challenged, not entirely. There's a lot of work still to be done, but absolutely profound social changes are possible when people acknowledge what is being done to them. And it took a consciousness raising moment for women to realize that this was being done to them, that it wasn't their fault, they weren't weak. And then you organize to fight. And I absolutely believe with the 12 factors that are trashing and ruining our ability to focus and pay attention, ours and our children's, we can take on and defeat those forces. Some of them we can handle at an individual level. Some of them we have to fight at a collective level, but we can absolutely do both those things. You know, Johan, I'm 58 and I was born in 63 and I remember, you know, growing up and my grandmother 
you know, exactly what you're describing, that, that the men controlled everything. And I, you know, just talking to my kids the other day about marriage contracts and how in community of property was what my mother, I mean, my mother couldn't open a bank account. My dad had to sign for her and had to, everything was controlled by the man. And, you know, in the sort of Christian world, even today, it's still pretty bad where the man is the head of the house, that kind of thing. But your point being that change happened, that was an impossibly I can remember that. I, I can, I might, and you can rem- remember it, and you're younger than I am. So now here we are in an age where we have a massive change. It's still lots to, to happen. So it's very encouraging, and I'm very pleased you brought up that analogy because people often throw up their hands and think, well, how can I change racism? How can I change the psychiatric system? How, you know, people often say to me, how are you? You're swimming upstream. You want single salmon swimming up, trying to swim upstream when it comes to mental health because I keep telling everyone mental health is. It's part of who you are. It's part of being human. Anxiety is not an illness. Emotions are not an illness. Mm-hmm. We've got to learn to embrace those. You know, it's the opposite message, but it takes a stream of people that stand together and you can change it. Eventually that change will come. Eventually the things will move in that direction. So thank you for that example because it's very encouraging and it's a good analogy for us to remember. Don't stop trying to make the changes. So we can deal with these things. Fantastic. Can we dive into reading? Because that was like case for the collapse of sustained reading. Because if that's if that's okay with you, unless you unless you want to go on another track first, because it kind of works so well with well, everything works so well together. Everything that you've said, because the technology just made me think of people reading on Kindle and instead of reading a book and going through page by page. And you bring up so many incredible points about the reading. Yeah. So of course, reading is one of the deepest forms of focus. It's probably the the form of deep focus that most people experience in their lives that moves them right and there has been it's another way in which we know this attention crisis is real there has been an extraordinary collapse in reading in the last 20 years so at the moment this was before covid and it's actually there was a slight uptick in reading under covid but reading books for all sorts of reasons partly can we just slow down but before covid 54 percent of americans never read a book on an average uh, day, oh sorry, in an average year, sorry. Yeah, so a majority. The first time in the history of the republic that a majority of Americans don't read books, and if you average out, I'm circling all that on this page. <laughs> and if you average out the amount of time people do spend reading books, so it's slightly misleading average because most people don't read at all. If you if you don't read books at all, but if you average it out, the average American spends seventeen minutes reading books every day and more than five hours looking at social media and screens. So it's an incredible, and that doesn't include work screens, screens for work. So this huge transition that's happened. And I spent a lot of time discussing this with some reading experts. And it's interesting because that is both a symptom of the attention crisis and a cause of the attention crisis in an interesting way. So I spent a lot of time discussing this with Professor Anne Mangan, who's at Stavanger University in Norway. And she's done a lot of research on this. And this is now a very well-demonstrated scientific fact. There's, there's, there's something called screen inferiority. So basically, you can test it very easily. You, you get a group of people and you divide them into two. And you give them the same information, get them to read the same thing. It can be a short story. It can be a journalistic article. It doesn't matter. Or it can be a whole book. And you get some of them to read it on a screen and you get some of them to read it on a physical on the physical page. And then you go back to them a week or a month or however long later, and you ask them questions about it. And when you do that, the people who read it on the screen 
always remember what they read significantly less on average, right? So there's a really diminished effect on memory and understanding when you read from screens. So in fact, that effect is so large that in elementary school children, it's, it's the equivalent of almost a year's worth of advancement in reading. So there's an interesting debate about why is that, right? And there's, this is more disputed. It's not entirely agreed. But one of the reasons is it seems that when we read on screens, we skim. So you, if I give you information on screen, you, sort of, you, you read in a sort of Z shape. Whereas when you read a physical book, generally you read you know, in a linear way. So reading trains us, reading books, trains us to think in a linear way, right? Also trains us to think in a still way, a calm way. Um, but partly what's happened is as we read more and more on screens, increasingly we take that Z-shaped skimming over into books when we try to read them. And it makes books much less pleasurable to read. Reading a book becomes less like lowering yourself into a warm bath and more like dashing around a supermarket to grab what you need and get out of the supermarket, right? So I think we're in this, this, this mode where screen reading is contaminating book reading. And so it's obviously complex process. Some of it's just people giving up the time they used to spend reading books on screens. Some of it, I think, is that the, the, the overuse of screens is, is poisoning the, the, the reading of, of books. There's another big factor. There's a guy called another big shift that happens as a result of the declining reading. There's a, a wonderful guy I interviewed in Toronto named Professor Raymond Marr. He did a lot of research. I can tell you how if you like, but I'll just give you the headline. So he discovered that reading fiction significantly improves your empathy. Yes. So, oh, that's so, uh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, if you read a lot of novels, what a novel is, is a simulated, it's a way of being inside someone else's head, right? And it's actually a much better virtual reality machine than the things we call virtual reality machines, which are not like being in someone else's head, right? So reading a novel, and he, he was the first person to prove this, reading a novel boosts your empathy and your ability to, to see inside, to imagine yourself inside other people's minds. And of course, as there's been a huge, and this is also true, by the way, for any complex form of long form fictionalized storytelling, which is based on a simulated social world where you're trying to figure out what other people think. So a long, a really long TV series does a similar job. Short stuff doesn't. Short cartoons, short shows, they don't do it. But longer simulations of, of social worlds do. And so as we're seeing this decline in in reading books you would expect that based on this research to have some negative effect on our empathy as you see when we're becoming angrier more aggressive towards each other so i would say you know take care what technologies you consume because over time your consciousness will come to be shaped like those technologies i would like to have a consciousness that is shaped like a novel not a consciousness that sounds like a twitter feed right and over time, if you, if, you expose, if you spend so much time exposed to these angry, coarsening voices, you know, 50 minutes a day for the average Facebook user, what that, what that and that's globally, it's actually higher in the US, what that does to you is your, your internal voices start to take on the shape of the thing you're reading. You know, sure. does, does that ring true to you? Oh, it's, it's incredible how you've described that. And it's, that's why, you know, this chapter, I think there was every single page I said question, 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 because he's like, you know, when I practiced, Mike, I used to do a story analysis therapy. 
And I developed a whole system around if I wanted to really understand my patients and be able to help them, I would do it through the medium of stories and then a whole sort of neuroscientific process around that. My kids grew up from babies. They were born. I would go and get them library books. They would grow up. One of their greatest, their favorite activities was to take a picnic to the library, get library books, and then sit in the park and read. They always went to be, you know, this was the norm that I grew up with and my kids grew up with. They still know as adults. My kids range from 23 to 30. Read books. They grab a book. They won't read off their screen. They're always carrying books and consuming books. I came to this country and in, in the United States and I went into schools and because of part of what I do is working in, in schools and doing research in schools and things like that as well. And I couldn't find libraries, Johan, in some of these schools. And I'm, a lot of them. And I said, where are the libraries? And so I actually tried to set up systems of bringing in portable libraries, getting books donated, whatever, just to get kids reading. Another little quick thing, just in like in the court in terms of our function, mind, brain, body function, cortisol levels and diurnal cortisol levels. When you are, when it's really early in the morning, children's cortisol levels aren't really at the right level for them to do things like maths and science. The mm-hmm. best thing to do first thing in the morning is read to them. So, so a lot of the places I've actually worked in, I'd say, okay, the first lesson of the day, all age groups, you read a story and you st- and you have that every single day. You start the school day. We, the, the dramatic improvements in academic functioning and social, emotional, cognitive, it, that's 35, 75% improvements. So, you know, this reading thing, okay, I'm going on about this, but it is so important. It's one of the, you know, everything you've said, everything you say in this book are life skills that everyone needs to get this book and everyone needs to read everything here because this is basic life skills that when you read it, you know it's true. You're reading, you you put into words what we know we need to be doing instinctively as humans. You touch our humanity at its core with with the way that you've approached the subject. So I wanted to really thank you for that. Oh, and I'm so glad, thank you. That's really moving. And I'm so glad you talked about school. As you were saying that about children listening to stories, there's this incredible research. Dr. Susan Pinker has written about it really well. He's a great writer. Um, So there's evidence that if you, and this is not just true of children, it's also true of adults. When we listen to a story together, our hearts start to beat in sync. Yes, yes. I know. find it really beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? I know. And to me, that feels like such a powerful metaphor. But I'm so glad you brought up the issue of, of schools because and, and childhood more generally. So there's been a huge explosion in children displaying attention problems. For every one child who was diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven years old, there's now 100 children who were given that. Diagnosis. So uh, and actually, it's an even bigger increase in the U.S., and Johan, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want no, to just please. back up that, that statistic there. When I, when I was practicing, when I was retrain, being trained, we had a neuroscience professor and an, an our neurology professor saying that we are going to, the ADHD had just become a term and at, in, the, in the 80s. And they actually said, we, in the next 30 years, we are going to have a pandemic attention problem. I sat in a lecture hearing someone saying that because mm-hmm. we are not going to get our kids to read, we, the whole school system's changing, and every second person is going to be labeled a with ADHD. And ADHD is not actually a thing. It's actually a group of symptoms that are symptoms of an underlying yeah. cause. Anyway, I, you carry on. I just wanted to mention no, that I because it's, I, I get excited when you talk. <laughs> well, no, you put that so beautifully because there has been a profound transformation of childhood. In, in the last 30 years, I remember I had this moment, I was in, a, it must be three, no, four years ago now, I was in Cauca, which is in the southwest of Colombia, and I was in this village, I was there to interview someone about something else, and it's in this village, and night was beginning to fall, 
walking out over the village, I was drinking a coffee, and I noticed that the children of the village, even very small children, three-year-olds and four-year-olds, were just running around freely, right? They were just playing freely. They had little games, they had little hoops and whatever, and they would, at one edge of the village, there's a rainforest there, and they would dare each other to run into the rainforest for like 30 seconds, then come out shrieking. And they would just run around completely free. The adults weren't looking at them, weren't looking out for them even. And, you know, sometimes one of them would fall over and come and find their mother or whatever. But they just played until it got to like dark and then they all came home, right, of their own accord. And I looked at that and I thought, that is exactly, my parents grew up in very different places, as we mentioned, right? Working class Scotland and Swiss mountain. And yet that's exactly what their childhoods were like. That's in fact what all human childhood was like, with tiny exceptions, for as long as our species has existed. Children played freely. And it turns out, so children learn most of their skills through this form of play. That has ended. So in the United States, uh, only 10% of children currently ever play outdoors without adult supervision. And that 10% who do play outdoors, the average amount they play outdoors on their own is 15 minutes a week. So that model of childhood has effectively ended, right? And it turns out there's, there's very good scientific evidence that we have lost things that are essential for human, fully functioning human attention. So one of them is just very simple. And again, it, this will sound like a no shit Sherlock thing to explain to people, but exercise, right? We all know if you let kids run around, afterwards they'll be able to sit down. Only 73% of elementary schools now have any form of recess, right? So exercise stripped out of children's lives. A lot of schools stopped their playgrounds, right? Because the schools were underfunded. Then there's the skills that children learn in play when they just play without adult supervision, which are essential for attention. If you picture, if I picture my mother or my father when they were little kids and they would just they would just leave the house at you know the morning and come back in the evening what were they learning when they went and played with all the other kids firstly they were learning how to make things happen you have to propose something they were learning how to negotiate disagreements with other kids you have to go no you've broken the rules these laws they were learning how to persuade other people you have to persuade some kids to join you other kids to not join you they were learning how to cope with disappointment sometimes you're going to lose and the other kids are going no you're lost they were learning how to cope with anxiety you know, sometimes you climb the tree, you get a bit nervous, you climb a bit more, you feel exhilarated. We've taken all these things out of children's lives, right? We've, we've stripped them of play. And it's stuck one of the them in a classroom. Exactly. And, it, and not just a classroom, it, partly just imprisoned in a classroom. And then they're imprisoned in their own homes, right? That the, the childhood now happens behind closed doors in ways that has been disastrous. It makes them more anxious. It makes it harder for them to discover the things that they're good at. That's absolutely key to attention, finding out what you find interesting, right? And also what's called a feeling of mastery. We find it much easier to focus on things when we feel we're good at them, right? What we've done is deprived children of, of discovering things they're good at, right? Because we're constantly managing their attention. How, how, did, how, did, how do you discover what you're good at? You try lots of things. You run around. You try loads of things. Some kids discover they're good at soccer. Some kids discover they're good at making the other kids laugh. Some kids discover they're good at, you know, reading and writing, whatever it might be, but we don't give them the space to go and explore. As one expert said, it's like we say to them, we've already explored the territory. We've already mapped the territory. Don't explore it. Right. But that's what childhood is. That's how children learn attention by exploring the environment. So we've really stripped them 
of something profoundly important. And I spent a lot of time with a, a woman I suspect you've heard of her called Lenore Skenazi, who, who amazing. Oh, she should have her on her show. Her show. She's, I love her. Remind me and I'll introduce you to her. She's a wonderful person. So Lenore runs a group called Let Grow, which is about helping parents let their kids be free again. So I went to lots of schools with her where they ran these programs and it was unbelievably moving. We went to this school called Roanoke Avenue Elementary School in Long Island. It's kind of poor neighborhood in Long Island. And they had had this moment a few years before, quite chilling moments. There's this thing called Global Play Day, which is where kids go into school, but they just play freely. They don't, you know, they don't have to. Yeah, exactly. And so they set up a load of toys and things. Um, Donna Verbeck, one of the teachers, I remember her telling me about this. They set up a load of the toys and everything. They unleashed the kids and some kids just dived in, but a lot of the kids just stood back and they kept going to teachers saying, what are we meant to do? And Donna said, well, just play. And they go, but how? And she sort of realised that a lot of these kids, they had never played freely, right? She described one boy, and this is a more extreme example, one boy who literally was so confused, he just went and sat off at the corner and fell asleep because they didn't, she realised... They've been hot-housed. They've been hot-housed, yeah. A really significant number of these children did not know how to play. And they were so disturbed by this that they get in touch with Lenore, who runs this group, Let Grow. It's letgrow.org, people who want to look it up. So they have a kind of process which is about helping children to to explore the environment. So the, the first thing they do is one day every week, they're given homework in inverted commas. The homework is go and do something on your own without your parents and come back and tell us about it, right? So these were nine-year-olds that I, was, uh, I went to go and see. I went to meet them after they'd done this. And it was so, it was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. So there was one little girl who had set up a lemonade stand, like in Charlie Brown. There was one other little girl who, there was a river near where she lived and she, wanted, she said she wanted to save the turtles. So she went and collected garbage from around the river. There was another boy, a very pale little boy. It was quite quiet. A lot of the kids were volunteering what they'd done. And it was quite quiet. I went and sat with him. And he said, you know, in my garden, there's a rope hanging from a tree. And I'd never thought to climb it before. But for my homework, I climbed the rope. And I said, how did it feel? And he said, it was scary at first, but I'm glad I did it. And I remember Lenore was with me that day. And when we left, I remember Lenore saying, in what previous generation would there have been a child who had a rope in their garden and it would not have occurred to the child to climb the rope until they were given homework to, to go and do something? Oh, wow. It, that's so bad. It's ch- but you really saw with that's these kids, mm. joy of them discovering it. And we went to another part of Long Island, a much fancier part of Long Island. We went to a middle school and there was this wonderful teacher called Jodie Marici, who's one of the teachers who's part of the program. And they had, she decided to sign up because she had a class of two, uh, in the year group, there were 200 kids and something like 50 of them had been diagnosed with anxiety problems. And she was like, something's really wrong here. And she could see that a lot of what was wrong is it's the small, as she put it to me, it's the small things that build confidence. And these kids weren't allowed to do the small things that build confidence, right? So they had done this Let Grow program. And it was, I mean, it was almost surreal talking to these kids. There was one boy, very tall. He was 14. He was taller than me, kind of strapping tall boy. And he said, well, my parents last year, they didn't, they wouldn't let me out of the house because of all these kidnappings. That was the phrase he used, right? 
There have never been any kidnappings of 14-year-old boys in Long Island, right? He had a level of, I mean, he lived in a, in a part of Long Island where the olive oil shop is across the street from the French bakery, right? And he had a level of fear that would be appropriate to if he lived in Syria at the height of the war, right? He was terrified. And so he described how as part of the Let Grow program, his parents let him go and jog around the block on his own. A big, tall 14-year-old boy. It was surreal. Anyway, and that gave them more confidence and gradually he built it up. And what had happened is recently him and a group of his friends who I met had gone into the woods and they built a fort for themselves, right? And they went and they were going to hang out in this fort. And Lenore said to me afterwards, you know, you think about human history, all throughout human history, we've gone out, we've explored, we've built things. And that boy, given a tiny bit of freedom, what do him and his friends do? They go into the woods and they build a fort. It was seeing people rediscovering a sense of agency. And you really saw this with, there was a moment the, the relevance to attention became so clear to me. There was a little boy, I'll call him LB, that's not his real name, who was at Roanoke, the, the elementary school. Um, he'd had a lot of attention problems. He didn't behave well in class. had a constant struggle with his mother to get him to read. And as part, he was given, he was part of the Let Grow program. And he decided the thing he was going to do on his own. Initially, he decided he was going to build a replica of a boat. So he got a hot glue gun, he got toothpicks, he got a load of stuff, and he built this replica of a boat. And then he said, well, what I want to build next is an actual wagon. So he goes to his neighbors who had bamboo in their garden and had it there. They said, can I have this bamboo? And, and he literally built this wagon he, with hammers and nails and everything. He built a whole wagon. And then he said, what I want to build is an amphibious wagon that, that they would go and push out onto the ocean. So again, he spends loads of time doing this. He builds this huge amphibious wagon. His dad drives him down to the ocean. They push it onto the ocean and it sinks. And he's really disappointed. And he goes home and he says, now I'm going to build an amphibious wagon and it's going to float. And he spends weeks doing it and they take it back to the ocean and it and it floated. I remember talking to him. So when he was being made to do things that were meaningless to him, it was very hard for him to focus. But suddenly he was reading loads of books, trying to figure out how do you build stuff, right? The teacher said he went from being like the bottom of the class to suddenly he was like the authority in the class. Whenever anyone wanted to build anything, they'd be like, go get LB. He understands how to do this. And you saw it was the incredible power of seeing a child well, I remember that the, the head teacher, Gary Carlson, there said to me, that taught that kid so much more than any formal instruction we could have given him, right? It, and I have to say, I do think our schools are particularly bad with giving boys a sense they're good at anything. This is, I think it's a crisis across the school system, but I think it's particularly acute for boys. I think we have a school system that makes boys feel incompetent, like they don't fit in. It does that also to girls to some degree, but I think it's even more pronounced for boys. And seeing this boy discover his attention, because for, for you to develop attention, you have to have space and freedom to find what you want to pay attention to. And this hothouse micromanagement of children, which has never existed in human history. No, and helicopter you know, parenting, all of it. Exactly. Lenore has this great analogy. She says, the idea that children can't go out on their own is such a radical departure from everything before in human history. It's as if we're saying children should sleep upside down or something, right? It's just such a... It's, and, and, and the idea that your children are in danger, I mean, children are three times more likely to be hit by lightning than killed by a stranger, right? We live in an unbelievably safe society, an unbelievably safe times, not all of us, but most of us. This is not... We need to restore childhood because 
Human beings can't develop attention fully if they haven't had childhoods where they get to freely play, they get to explore, they get to find out what's meaningful to them. And it's one reason why we've got so many anxious teenagers who can't pay attention. Are you looking to make a change and eat healthier? Splendid Spoon takes all the work out of what you're eating next. With over 50 meal options, you can choose from smoothies, grain and noodle bowls, soups, wellness shots and more. Splendid Spoon offers four starting plans. The most popular is the signature plan that includes breakfast, lunch and a signature reset product, which is perfect when we get off track in our wellness journey and overindulge on high calorie nutrient depleted foods. The reset soups are low in calories yet contain vitamins and minerals that are easy on your tummy. Splendid Spoon believes in plant-based eating as the single most effective tool we have to feel our best day in and day out. When you make a habit out of plant-based eating, it can help you to be the best version of yourself with side benefits like more energy, weight loss, improved sleep and better skin. I personally love their mint chip smoothie, which I drink in the morning to give me the energy and nutrients I need to get my brain and body ready for the day. It is incredibly delicious and packed full of protein, fiber and other important nutrients. Get started and save $35 on your first order of delicious plant-based meals at splendidspoon.com slash drleaf. That's splendidspoon.com slash drleaf to save $35 on your first order. It's only $6.66 per meal. The link and details will be in the show notes. Absolutely, I can vouch for that just in my practice over the 25 years, how that changed, how the anxiety increased because there was less and less freedom to play and to read you know it's like it's play and read let a child and even an adult even an adolescent they still need time to play and explore and everything you've you've just you've just hit so many important points that we can come back to it's not these none none of these things cost a million dollars or are going to it's just a matter of reshifting our focus and, and relearning how to bring these things back in that we know work natural human things and that's one of the things Lenore says when she goes and speaks to parents to make the case for Let Grow. She gets them to talk about something they loved doing when they were kids, but that they don't allow their kids to do, right? And they also say things like, I used to ride my bike miles away from home. I used to play marbles. I used to, they, they have this big, and they built forts. They go into this reverie about what they used to do. And then she says, you know, you're saving up all this money. You're working hard to get all this money to pay for them to go to ballet class. You're not giving them the thing that you love the most. You're depriving them of the thing they love them that you love the most. And the thing you love the most was free, right? So I really urge anyone listening to who who, who this is vibing with to to really look up letgrow.org and amazing work. And I think we've really seen that in the pandemic when you know children have been deprived of play. You know, often we had to have restrictive practices because we're experiencing an airborne virus, but you really saw that even more acutely. And I I think one of the reasons why our kids are so obsessed with video games is because that's the only place where they do get to explore anything. They feel they're roaming around, right? And we have to look at, we just to say one thing about that, sorry, I think it's also worth thinking about the societies which don't have children with attention problems or significant numbers. So, Finland, for example, the Scandinavian country. So in Finland, childhood is, has remained entirely built around play. Children don't go to school until they're seven. They just play before that. Between seven and 16, they go to school between 9 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. They have almost no homework. They have almost no testing. And, and what, what's the result? 
Finnish people are some of the happiest, most literate people in the whole world. And they have diagnosed attention problems of 0.1%, right? I always because, quote that. Yeah, it's unreal. It's, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, I just think so. We, the places that have kept childhood built around play are not seeing these huge crises in attention in children. That's got, I'm not saying there's no problems, but they're drastically smaller than problems we face. That's got to tell us something really important. Oh, gosh, it, it's it's vital. You know, we've got all these societies given us, has gone from play and freedom, which is the best way to develop, to giving us these norms. You should finish, start school at this time, finish at this time, do this at this time. All these restrictions that are putting so much anxiety onto children and parents to try and hothouse them into these norms. We've got to throw this out the door and let, let your children find what they need to do. And, and you know, it, does, it doesn't mean that they're not going to, they still have access to education and all that kind of thing, but it's got to be done in a much more natural way. It did work better before, and we've got to bring those principles back. Gosh, Johan, it is already, I, I want to respect your time. I could I could talk to you all day long. This is just one of the most fantastic topics. Can I bring you back for part two and part three? <laughs> I, would, I would love to have you come back again because I believe we've just touched the tip of the iceberg and it's just absolutely outstanding. Every word you've said is a pearl of wisdom and I feel so inspired and so excited to talk to you. And really, it's been, it's been such, a, such a fantastic time for me just to, to hear you talk about these really important things. So thank you. Well, I hope you'll come back again. And where can people find out more about you? And, you know, this is, I know your book's being released like literally in this week. So people need to get a copy of this stolen focus. It's absolutely outstanding. But where can people get, find out more about you? People can go to any bookstore and ask for stolen focus. But if you want to get the audio book, the ebook or the physical book, you can go to stolenfocusbook.com. You can also listen to audio of loads of the people we've been talking about for free on the website. If you want to find out about my other books, you go to j o h a n n h a r i dot com. You can see my other books and more information about me, and you can see whether to follow me on social media. Although I won't reply to you because I don't look at it very much, and for all the reasons that we talked about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> a bit hypocritical if I was then something popping up all the time on on Twitter. And yeah, and I really thank you for paying such close attention to the book. I find it really moving, and I really appreciate you and the work you're doing. Some. I'm thrilled to have had this conversation. And next time I'm in Dallas, let's we should hang out. Oh, we definitely should hang out. I think you and I'll have a lot of fun hanging out. It's been oh. like, the, I, there's just, I could talk to you forever. So it's just amazing. Oh. Thank you for, you just, you're, you're fantastic. You're absolutely fantastic and totally brilliant. And you're changing the world with your, you, you are oh. stirring us up to take back our humanity and that we can do it. You know, you, you, you come with a lot of the, yes, this, these are the problems, but we can do this. So it's such an encouraging message as well. So thank you. And I cannot wait to hang out. I cannot wait to have you back again. Oh. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You Cheers. too. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. 
So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.